Welcome to the Calvary Church Podcast. We're glad that you are here and that you can be a part of a recent service at TCC. So let's join the service, which is already underway, and listen to the message. So last week, Kristen helped us understand that the wisdom literature of Scripture, uh, it reveals to us many things about the nature of God and his desires for his people. And one of those desires is for him to share with us his infinite wisdom. Wisdom is really the, the I guess you could say, the, the opportunity where God begins to share what he knows with us. And of course, we all feel like we are smart individuals, and we feel like we know a lot, and we, we learn a lot. But in reality, we understand that God's ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so wisdom is really revealed to us by God, and God wants us to understand his ways. And so wisdom is essential to our walk with God. Paul articulated uh, this succinctly when he said in the letter to the Ephesians church in Ephesians chapter 5, 15, see then that you walk circumspectly or walk carefully, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And so he flips the idea of wisdom to be unwise is to not understand what the will of the Lord is. And Paul told us that we could understand what God's ultimate will is for us in our lives. In Proverbs, it tells us three times to get wisdom, to possess wisdom in our life. And when Solomon, the son of David, followed his father as king of Israel, God asked Solomon what he wanted. And Solomon replied that of all the things he wanted, he asked in humility for wisdom to judge the people of God. And so scripture tells us how God responded to this amazing request. God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for a long life for yourself, nor have you asked for riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your word. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has has not been anyone like you before, nor shall anyone like you arise after you. And so we see here that humility and wisdom are uh, connected very closely. And Solomon wrote, he said in Proverbs fifteen thirty three, the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. James would write it like this, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by a good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Wisdom is humble by nature. He said, let him show if he's wise by the good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. In verse 14, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, do not boast and lie against the truth. And then this next passage I think is both powerful and it's very timely in our culture. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly. It's sensual and it is demonic. For where envy 
and self-seeking exist, what happens? Confusion. We live in a world that is absolutely obsessed with confusion. Flipping what's good and evil, evil and good, flipping what nature says, flipping everything that you know, but where does that flip come from? Where does that confusion come from? It comes from envy and self-seeking. Anytime culture, anytime a people is all about themselves and inward, it's going to create confusion. It seems like wisdom in the moment. It seems like we're maturing and we're becoming more wise as a culture. But in fact, the Bible is telling us it is earthly, it is sensual, and it is demonic. Is that not a timely passage? But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. And he says, now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So we see there's a tremendous power in wisdom. And what we understand is wise living opens doors. Wise living opens doors in our lives. Wise living makes for peace in our lives. And you think about the last hundred years, the capacity for wisdom and knowledge has grown exponentially. Think about technology and how we change what we hear. You went from hearing limited thoughts and ideas from primarily teachers, parents, teachers, preachers, and politicians and clubs to the expanding of the growth of media and radio and television began to expound on those who could put wisdom in our minds to now everyone gets a voice and everyone has an opinion and we absorb it as if it's wisdom. Where does wisdom come from? And where does my idea of how I should live come from? And I, you have to answer that for yourself, but the wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, it's sensual, it's demonic, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion, and every evil thing are there, but the wisdom that is from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. In other words, it's not found on social media. It's not found on the internet, most likely. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so Kristen did a remarkable job last week helping us to see God's wisdom. And in particular, she highlighted how we can see God's wisdom in suffering. And through the book of Job, we learn that while we face suffering and we will face moments when God doesn't respond the way that we think he should, yet we can still walk in his wisdom. And wisdom doesn't mean that we don't ask the question why. However, wisdom always leads us towards the fear and awe of the Lord. God doesn't necessarily answer Job's question the way Job wanted it answered. He simply gives Job a revelation of who he is. And he 
Ask him, where were you when I formed the world? It was a revelation that God has a purpose beyond what we can imagine. And, and I encourage you to listen to last week's lesson. And so as we continue through this idea and this, this area of Scripture called the wisdom books in the Old Testament, we find a book called Ecclesiastes. The word Ecclesiastes comes from the opening verse of that passage. It says, the words of the preacher or teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. It's a Hebrew word uh, that is pronounced Koheleth, and it means a person who gathers or collects people. It means uh, to, to bring people together for the purpose of sharing something. And so that's why it's translated preacher or teacher. It's also, in, with the, the word ecclesiastes is, comes from the Greek word, and, and you might have heard this if you study New Testament, you hear of the ecclesia or the church or the called out. It's a gathering of people. And so the author of this book is found in the first verse as well. It's the words of a preacher teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The author is, though, relaying the words of the teacher, even though most scholars believe that the words are from Solomon. Uh, others think that it could be one of David's other sons, or it could even be someone, scholars think, who is writing like Solomon, is using Solomon-like language. I tend to lean towards Solomon being the author, but the author is writing kind of in a third-person style. And the summary of the book is found in the second verse. And it says in Ecclesiastes 1-2, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanities of vanities, all is vanity. Five out of the 12 English words used is vanity. In Hebrew, it is five out of eight words is vanity. Or the Hebrew word is havel. Havel, it literally means vapor or breath. But in its context, it means useless or absurd or vain or meaningless. Meaningly, meaningless. Yes, that is a word. It is empty. And this book could be called the book of Emptiness. It's an ultimate bestseller for melancholies. It's the perfect gift for the Eeyores in your life. The meaning of the word Havel, which is used throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, it's used 38 times. And it's difficult to capture in one English word. Biblical scholar Dwayne Garrett stated the meaning of the word as this, everything is transitionary, therefore of no lasting value. People are caught in the trap of the absurd and pursue empty pleasures and they build their lives on lies. And it's this idea of something being empty. What I found intriguing is the idea behind the word is that the word actually comes from the second son of Adam and Eve and is actually the same word. We call him Abel. And the story of Abel is a story, as 
biblical scholar Jeremy Painter described as an innocent boy minding his own business one day doing exactly what God said. But he is clubbed to death by the hand of his jealous older brother Cain. And this was the world's first human death. Can you imagine the shock of the parents? Adam and Eve were the ones who were supposed to die first. But yet a son dies first instead. It was unnecessary. It was meaningless. His life disappeared so fast. Gone. He was there. Then he wasn't. Only his blood cried from the ground. So in time, the name Abel became synonymous with vapor. It is breath that, depending on the conditions, leaves a visible expression like fog, like steam, and condensation when it's cold outside and you walk out and you breathe into the air. And herein is the imagery that is being sought after in the book of Ecclesiastes. It is this idea of vapor or smoke that appears to be tangible and solid. But yet, when you reach out to grab it, you come up empty. Ecclesiastes 1.14, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed, all is vanity and grasping for the wind. The teacher talks about everything in our lives, and all of it is temporary. It appears, then it's gone. It has meaning, then it doesn't. It appears important, and then it isn't. It brings happiness, and then it doesn't. And so Ecclesiastes, over and over, you get this idea, different subjects, different things, some of it seemingly good, some of it we know is not good. Labor, he says, what profit has a man from all his labors in which he toils under the sun? He talks about time, and he says, one generation passes away, and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises, and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rose. The wind goes towards the south and turns to the north and the wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full to the place from which the river comes there. They return again. Life repeats itself over and over and over and over again. He even talks about wisdom. He said, I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping wind for in much wisdom is much grief and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow we chase knowledge and we chase wisdom and how many has that ever created more questions than it did answers Ecclesiastes 2, 4, he describes, he said, I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. Whatever my eye desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works of my, that my hand had done and on the labor in which I toiled. And indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. 
He talks about everything there is a time, and he talked about injustice and how we see injustice and how it seems like injustice prevails. He said in 3.16, moreover, I saw the sun in the place of judgment. Wickedness was there, and in time of, uh, in, and in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. You know, on and on it goes. He reaches a really dark point in Ecclesiastes 4, where the teacher says, Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun, and look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors there is power, but they have no comforter. Therefore I praise the dead who were already dead more than the living who are still alive. He envied the dead because they didn't have to deal with it anymore. And he said this, yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Such a positive message. I feel hopeful tonight. He takes us all the way to the end. And he describes that death is the great equalizer. Time will come to an end. And he says everything is heaven. Everything is smoke. Time, career, wealth, happiness. It's there and then it's not. So the teacher who takes us on this deep, dark dive where everything appears and then disappears, then brings us back to the power of true wisdom. In Ecclesiastes 12, remember now your creator in the days of your youth. Before the difficult days come and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. He says, start your years as soon as you can Start thinking about your creator. Put your hope in your creator. And he colorfully describes death. While the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened, and the clouds do not return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong man bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those that look through the windows grow dim, When the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low, when one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of music are brought low. Also they are afraid of height and of terrors in the way when the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper is a burden and desire fails for man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. He says, remember the creator before the silver cord is loosed or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher shattered at the foundation, or the wheel broken at the well. Remember your creator. In other words, there's a bookend opportunity that you remember your creator as early as you can, and you remember your creator as late as you can. He says, then dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it, Vanities, a vanity, says the preacher. All is vanities. It's all smoke. It's all a vapor. The teacher points us, though, to these two important seasons in life. 
in the light of youth and in the shadow of the grave. Both of them should be filled with wisdom. And he says, and moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge, yet he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these of making many books. There is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Of everything that you're doing, everything that you're reaching for, everything you're grasping for, he says it boils down to this. Wisdom is fearing God and keeping his commandments. Might not mean that you have the most money in the bank account. It might not mean you have the coolest car that you, you can drive. But what it means is that you've put your hope, you've put your trust in Jesus Christ. And here we see God's wisdom in our motives in everyday life. We have to walk through seasons, and in the middle of this, he says, there's different times. There's a time to weep, and there's a time to be happy, and there's a time to grow, and there's a time to harvest. He goes through all these different times, but I feel the challenge of this book of wisdom is what is the motives for our everyday? Is it out of fear of God? Is it out of reverence towards God? He says we can chase the wind and we can try to capture it in a bottle or we can fear God and trust his plan and his sovereignty. If I prosper, I trust God and I obey him. If I lack, I trust God and obey him. And so we realize that wisdom is putting God first in our lives and in the motives of our lives. So for the last part of this lesson tonight, we're going to quickly look at a book of what we commonly call and what is most often listed in the Bible as the Song of Solomon. Somehow I got tasked with teaching on this book. It's also known as the Song of Songs. It is a book that, like the book of Revelation, People have a lot of ideas about its interpretation, meaning, and use in Scripture. And I will not articulate all of those uses or all of those interpretations. In December of this year, or 2021, on the Sunday evening of our Missions Weekend or Mission Sunday, Reverend Raymond Woodward preached a message called Cinderella. And the message was built around this book, and I encourage you to listen to it if you haven't. But he pointed out that at one point it looked like the Song of Solomon wouldn't even be included in the Bible uh, in the canonization of Scripture, mainly because of its frank descriptions of intimacy and sexual love. However, the Jews felt that it um, looked like that it was best to maintain the book of poetry in the Hebrew Bible, and in fact, the Jewish people every year during Passover, which begins this Friday, they go through the 
book of Song of Songs. And it, for them, paints a picture of engagement uh, and a wedding and a marriage that reflects on how God chose to love people. And some Jewish scholars think that the Song of Songs is a type of allegory that shows how Israel was engaged to Jehovah on the night of Passover, and then he delivered them from Egypt, and they were married, so to speak, to Jehovah on the day of Pentecost, or on Pentecost when he gave them the law in Mount Sinai, and just before they went to the Promised Land. The most common opinion about the authorship of the Song of Songs is King Solomon, hence the title of the book most often being called the Song of Solomon. And so when you read the first passage, it says the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And we realize that in 1 Kings, it outlines for us the expanse of Solomon's wisdom. We understand that, we read that a little bit, that he was the wisest man to ever live. In 1 Kings chapter 4, it says that God gave Solomon wisdom and exceeding great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand of the seashore. Thus, Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all the men in the surrounding nations. Verse 32, he spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. And it talks about in the last few verses all the things he learned about, the birds and the fish and the creeping things, and the men of all nations would come to hear him speak. Very brilliant man, but he was given this wisdom and knowledge by God. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. And of those 3,000, we have recorded less than 1,000 of those, mainly in the book of Proverbs. Of the 1,005 songs that he wrote, only one survived. As Raymond Woodward said, it is the greatest one-hit wonder of all time. So it begins, the song of songs, which is Solomon's. The song of, Sol- so- song of songs. Try to say that three times. It's a Hebrew idiom, like you would say, holiest of holies, or king of kings, lord of lords. It's the greatest of all. It's the greatest of all songs is the song of songs. And so biblical, biblical scholar Dwayne Garrett says that no other book of the Bible, except perhaps the book of Revelation, suffers under so many radical different interpretations as the song of songs. It is a book with a myriad of opinions on its interpretation, and really the book has no real natural flow to it. So we like our stories to be told typically in a natural flow or an easily uh, understood beginning, middle, ending. The Song of Songs does not give us that. It's a messy book. It goes all kinds of places, but it describes a woman's love for a man and a man's love 
for a woman. And she rejoices and she praises his virtues like Kristen does often to me. And he admires and lavishes her with attention as I do Kristen. There are certainly, certainly layers of this book that can be extracted in a variety of ways. Uh, it can be taken as an allegory, although some, many scholars warn about taking the allegory approach, which is more of a direct image where it, if you replace the words with something else, it would have a different meaning. It can also be taken as typographical, where it speaks of one event, but it also speaks of another event, and we see that often in Scripture. It can also be taken as just a narrative story. There are several other ways that this mysterious book and this poem, this song, can lend itself. A few other difficulties in understanding or interpreting the book is trying to determine who is speaking when. So there are three main voices that you're going to hear in the Song of Songs. It's going to be the woman. Her voice is heard most. I'm not going to say anything about that. But the woman's voice is heard most. Then there's the man. And then there's everybody else. There's groups of people. So to accurately identify who is speaking, the reader should consider three things. First, you have to look for the... English gender identifiers to make sure you're keeping track with who is saying what, or you have to consider the context of what's being said, or you use Bible study resources to help you understand when a masculine pronoun is being used or a feminine pronoun is being used, or it will outline the speaker for you. So we're going to read a passage of scripture, and this is going to be fun. It's just for fun, and it's also going to create uh, an awkward moment for all of us, potentially. All right, Song of Solomon, Song of so Songs, chapter 4, verse 16. I'm going to leave out anything. Well, we, we can add the, the who's speaking where. All right, so the woman begins, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south, blow upon my garden, that its spices may flow out. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. You interpret that however you want. The man says, I have come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. Uh, I have gathered my myrrh. Let me just pause. This is not, the sister is a term of endearment that is used in the Hebrew language. It is not a relative. All right. My sister, my spouse, I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. And then his friends say, eat, O oh friends, drink, yes, drink deeply, O oh beloved, or he says to his friends, eat, O oh friends, drink, yes, drink deeply, O oh beloved ones. Then the woman says, I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. Isn't that beautiful? It's like a Hallmark card. It says something, but no one knows what it means, but it sounds really great. And the challenge with interpreting the Song of Solomon is that it is a song that flows back and forth between various speakers, and it shifts seamlessly from scene to scene, and, and not much of a definitive storyline is here, and the poetry oftentimes will circle back on itself. And there are dream sequences in it, and you have to pick up on when this is a dream and when this is in real life. And if you've ever had a dream, you can know how vivid those can be and, and weird at times those can be. However, 
You can see important themes throughout and you can pull it like a thread, like something that is woven. You can pull threads out. And one of the threads in the language of Song of Songs is the idea of intense desire. There's an intense desire to be together. There's an intense desire uh, to be with one another. And then there are threads of the language that talk about physical attraction. And there are many strange compliments uh, that uh, we can get into Dove eyes and hair like flocks of goats and teeth like a flock of sheep, temples like pomegranates, cheeks like a bed of spices, and what Kristen says to me a lot, body like a carved ivory. (laughs) I don't know what that means all the time, but anyway, whatever. But because... All right. But because... There we go. But because of the physical descriptions in the book, specifically the sexual language the book uses, it is often difficult to understand and definitely more challenging to preach or teach from in a wider audience. However, the book can be very important and powerful in our lives, and it is important to see this is a book of wisdom. It is considered as a book to bring wisdom to God's people. We can pull from this poem one thing that I think is very compelling. And what I want to end with tonight is a thread that I believe is maybe most important in the Song of Songs. It is God's wisdom found in love. We might call it true love. We might call it undivided love. The real power of wisdom found in Song of Songs is the wisdom found in undivided love. Toward the end of the poem, we see the the real meaning of this, the woman says to the man, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would, live, would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. When you look at the book of Song of Songs and you try to extract the meaning of undivided love, you will keep coming across this very powerful imagery. Where Ecclesiastes takes us back to Abel, Song of Solomon takes us back to the Garden of Eden. Over and over you will see garden imagery in the poem. Jeremy Painter states this, he says... Though there are images of streets and cities and towers in the Song of Songs, the setting is more pastoral. The garden scenes dominate. The lover's ceiling is the trees. Their floor is the grass of the field. Their love and desire for one another is such that the whole world reminds them of the other. In Genesis, Adam has named all things. His voice is behind everything. Think about that. Adam named everything. In Song of Songs, the woman cannot look upon a lily or an apple tree without being reminded of him. He cannot look at a dove's eyes without seeing her eyes behind them. And in the Song of Songs, their marriage itself is Eden. Song of Songs gives us this picture of true love, a pure love, a love that didn't require commandments and covenants and I do 
and I won't, and I promise, and I will, until death do us part. But the Song of Solomon shows us an engagement, a wedding, and a marriage that isn't built on a contract or commandments, but on the desire for one another. And I propose today that the mystery of this kind of love is true wisdom. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. That's why it's here. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Do you see the song of songs in this that that she keeps longing for him and he wants to be with her? And it says that love never fails But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall No, just as also I am known. You see how love is really the context for everything we are to know about God. And he says, and now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. And Raymond Woodward said, the Song of Solomon was meant to be understood on two levels. It celebrates human love but it points to humanity's ultimate purpose. You and I were not created to be destructive and broken in containers of hatred and sadness and despair and hopelessness. And here is the hope found in Song of Songs. Song of Solomon ends with them in the garden, just like the Garden of Eden. And it's the restoration of love. And so we see the closing of Solomon. It reminds us, of this relationship that is so powerful. Song of Songs 8.13. You who dwell in the gardens, the companions listen for your voice. Let me hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Yes, it's kind of hidden. It's kind of colorful. But it's this longing. I want to be in relationship to you. And these figures, these deer and these This imagery is this idea of everything, all the restraints are gone. And now we finally get to be together. And that's the heart of God for us. Last week, Kristen asked you to talk about someone who exemplified wisdom in suffering. Tonight, we've kind of looked at two other aspects of wisdom. Wisdom found in the, the, the motives of everyday life and wisdom found in undivided love. And so for our app time, I'm not going to try to create anything awkward. It's just going to be a couple minutes, all right? 
Find somebody near you. Talk about someone in your life who exemplified wisdom in everyday living or someone who exemplified wisdom in their relationships or marriage, in their undivided love, maybe for their spouse. And so, who in your life has inspired your faith as you have observed them in everyday life or their love for their spouse? All right, we've got a couple minutes to do this. Well, I hope you found somebody that you could talk about their wisdom. Would you stand with me tonight? As I mentioned in Job, we see the need of God's wisdom in suffering. In Ecclesiastes, we see the need of God's wisdom in everyday life and in our motives for everyday life. In the Song of Songs, we see the need of God's wisdom in love. Wisdom is essential to our walk with God. And so I just remind us to see then that we walk circumspectly or carefully, not as fools, but as wise. We hear the conclusion of the whole matter, and that is to fear God and keep His commandments. And I pray that you find wisdom in your life, because it's worth reaching for, it's worth looking for, and it's worth having in your life. I pray for you tonight. Lord, we thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for the opportunity to be together tonight to look into just the power of your word. And God, every aspect of this great book, Lord, we can find your truth. We can find truth that impacts every area of our life. God, we find truth that impacts our careers It impacts our living, our pleasure, our hobbies, our entertainment. We find your wisdom that impacts our relationships. God, we thank you for heavenly wisdom, not earthly or sensual or demonic wisdom, but Lord, we thank you for heavenly wisdom that points us to righteousness and peace. God, we thank you for it. I pray this weekend, Lord, that people would find again the hope that is in the cross and in the power of the resurrection. Bring us back on Easter Sunday, should you tarry. And Lord, let us have a great week. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This podcast was brought to you by the Calvary Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. For more information about the Calvary Church, please visit our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Consider joining us for a service where you will find friendly people, high-energy music, 
and life-transforming preaching and teaching from a biblical worldview. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or on our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.